Hello and welcome along to this Tenor Square podcast. I'm Richard Dew and today I'm going to be talking about the very recent decision in Clitheroe and Bond. So this case decided by Mrs Justice Falks on appeal from Deputy Master Lindwood is all about testamentary capacity. It decided in effect three things. That was the core of the case anyway so we're going to have a look at those. The first was what the test for incapacity is, in particular whether the Mental Capacity Act applies or whether it's the common law test in Banks and Goodfellow. The second is what amounts to delusions and how you treat the evidence on delusions. That's really interesting because it's quite unusual to see in testamentary capacity cases allegations of delusions, and in particular this case really turns on that. And third was how to treat expert evidence, in particular in circumstances where one of those experts had said there was insufficient evidence to make a particular finding. So we'll have a look at what the judge actually decided on those when we get to the end. But just to set the scene, this was, as these cases so often are, a pretty sad story of a broken family. We have Jean, the deceased, who had two children by the time of her death surviving her. That was John and Sue, and they're the protagonists in this case. They're her two surviving children by her husband, Keith. She had a third child, Debs, who died in 2009. And there are two sort of important factual incidents in this case. One happened many, many years ago in 1980 when Jean divorced Keith. She did so because she discovered evidence in the form of letters which showed that her husband had been sexually abusing Sue, her daughter. A pretty shocking sort of incident, um, no doubt scarred the family for the rest of their days. The second critical incident is that Debs, the sister of John and Sue, died in 2009 from cancer. And there was an incident just before she died where Jean appeared to have a fixated view that Debs shouldn't receive any morphine and had obstructed Debs from obtaining morphine. Obviously also a very upsetting incident. There were two wills that were in issue. One was made in 2010, so just after Debs had died. And that left the residue of the estate to John with some gifts to Sue, but not of any great value of, of crystals. And the second, there's a later will in 2013, where all of the estate was left to John, completely excluding Sue, and she received nothing whatsoever from that. Sue challenged both of those wills, and John sought to admit both of them to probate, and she clearly needed to defeat both wills in order to succeed in her case. At first instance, as I said, in front of Deputy Master Linwood, it was found that both wills were invalid. You can focus really on two things. The, the first, predominantly, was that Jean was suffering from irrational and delusional belief, particularly that the allegations of abuse made back in 1980 were actually untrue and that there were no letters. That's a view that she seemed to have reached just towards the end of her life, which poisoned her mind, as you can imagine, against Sue. And the second is that she was, and probably the thing that caused those irrational beliefs, is that she was suffering from an effective disorder caused by a complex grief reaction which caused a significant amount of depression and thereby impaired her testamentary capacity. So for those reasons, the deputy master found that Sue lacked capacity to make a valid will. So John appealed that decision in order to try and uphold the 2010 and 2013 will. And the principal ground of appeal seemed to be, as I read, the appeal judgment that the judge applied, the deputy master applied the wrong test for incapacity. In particular, he should have applied, they said, the Mental Capacity Act test rather than the Banks and Goodfellow test. 
Now, if you're considering the importance of this decision, you need to understand that actually the judge on the appeal decided not to allow that ground of appeal, not to hear that ground of appeal. And she did so because she said that at first instance it had been common ground that the common law banks and Goodfellow test applied. And so it was unfair, unjust, as she said, to allow that ground of appeal to be run because it would have had a substantial effect on how the evidence had been produced at trial, how the court would have considered that evidence and so on. So it just couldn't be run. So although she just then set out what she would have decided on that ground, she doesn't actually decide it. So as a matter of precedent, of course, what she says is only by way of comment. That says it's an important bit of comment, not least because it seems that Mr Justice Fox seems to hear a lot of cases about capacity and incapacity and things like that, and might well hear the next decision about this, as well as no doubt influencing her fellow judges at that level. So what did she say about it? Well, the argument essentially goes that the Mental Capacity Act brought in a completely new test of capacity, and that that test ought to apply either because the statute says so or because that's the right thing to do to all questions of capacity or incapacity. And there's a sort of policy argument that if it weren't to apply, then it would cause significant problems. In particular, you can imagine a case where the court had to consider whether or not to make a new will for somebody, a statutory will for someone, and would be questioning whether that person had capacity, and presumably would be applying the Mental Capacity Act test in deciding that, notwithstanding that if one looked retrospectively post-death at the validity of any will that person made, one would be applying the Banks and Goodfellow test. And, and there's obviously some sympathy with an argument that that just doesn't really sound right and to assert therefore that the Mental Capacity Act test must have superseded the Banks and Goodfellow test. Now that said, that initial line of, of apparent logic didn't have a great deal of prospects even going into this decision because there are two earlier decisions, I think actually there's more, but there's two cited in the judgment, one called James and James and one called Wright and Hassel, where two other judges decided that the correct test to apply was the common law banks and goodfellow test and that the MCA had not decided that. And I think really when you consider the mental capacity, that must be right because the test for capacity which is set out in that act is said to apply for the purposes of the statute and testing whether somebody has or had the capacity to make a will is not a purpose of the statute, nor is the court given any power under the Mental Capacity Act to decide on the validity of a will or not. And the cases say that in the context of statutory will cases, that the Court of Protection has no ability, no jurisdiction to decide on the validity of a will that somebody has made. So it, that's a pretty difficult line of argument, and that's really what Mrs Justice Fox decided, or said that she would have decided. Perhaps the significance of applying the Mental Capacity Act test over the Banks and Goodfellow test is not so much a difference in the test, although there are some subtle differences in particular in the way that the Mental Capacity Act focuses on the nature in which the decision is made, the decision-making process, as opposed to the substance of it, which Banks and Goodfellow tends to do. But I think the reality of whether or not it would make any difference in any particular case focuses on the burden of proof, because under the Mental Capacity Act there is a presumption that one has capacity, whereas we know that in cases of alleged testamentary incapacity, you can, if you can show reasons, why the deceased might have lacked capacity, place the burden on the person propounding the will to establish that the person had that capacity. So you can put the presumption on the person to assert that there is capacity, which you can never do under the Mental Capacity Act. 
Now, most cases aren't, in fact, decided on the burden of proof, but clearly that will make it harder for one party going into trial to see if they're going to win or not. That really is the most significant difference, because it does seem to me that ultimately the two tests are not dramatically different and are not likely to make a dramatically different decision in any particular case. Anyway, this case is now at least the third decision to say that for Wills, the bank's good fellow test applies. It seems very unlikely, even at court of appeal level, that this argument is going to succeed. So we can probably see that now as being fairly well established. So moving on to delusions, you'll remember that the last limb of the banks and good fellow test is that the individual not be suffering from delusions. I think that case actually turns on delusions. And what this case considered at appeal was whether it was necessary to prove that the testator could not have been reasoned out of the delusions that she suffered from. And so that turned on fairly subtle questions of whether there was evidence existing or otherwise that somebody had made an attempt to dissuade the testator out of the delusions which she held, in which case, if they could show that she couldn't be dissuaded, then she would be said to be suffering from delusions. Whereas if there had been no attempt to do so, it might be said that her delusions were not sufficient to make the will invalid. And that made a difference because of the various ways in which the evidence came out in this case. The judge said here, she sort of skipped away from making a firm decision on that point. She said that the delusions must be irrational and fixed in nature. She declined to agree, or she disagreed really, that it was necessary to establish that an attempt, an unsuccessful attempt, had been made to dissuade the testator. And she said that it would depend on particular cases and whether or not those that had been possible or realistic would differ from case to case. So she didn't decide that you had to try and reason somebody out of the delusions, but she did decide that delusions must be both irrational and fixed in nature. She then expressed some concerns about the way in which the deputy master had approached the evidence on delusions without coming to a concluded view. And the reason she didn't come to a concluded view is that there is an extra part of this appeal which she had not heard to introduce further evidence to further consider whether or not the deputy master was right to say that Jean was suffering from delusions. So there's the possibility of her, that is the appeal judge, considering further evidence about whether Jean had uh, suffered from significant delusions. So she doesn't decide how the case decides, but she does make some comments intended, I think, to guide the parties as to where she might go, which seem to be supportive of the suggestion that Deputy Master's decision was right, that she would have been suffering from delusions. So those are the two big points. The last point is really a question of how to consider expert evidence. We had a set battle of, of two very well-known experts in this case, Professor Jacobi, who concluded firmly that the testator was suffering from an affective disorder and whose evidence the deputy master preferred. And, and Dr. Seary is also a very well-known expert in this field, who said that based on the notes and the evidence that he had seen, it could not be said positively that the testator was suffering from an affective disorder because there had been no lifetime diagnosis of that and there was insufficient evidence to say that there should be such a, a diagnosis. And the judge had to sort of consider whether Deputy Master was right in the way he approached the two experts. And she found that he was, and that his approach to favour one expert for the reasons that he given was right, and that really what Dr. Sirius was saying was that he couldn't see that there was sufficient evidence, but whereas it was possible to say, well, Jacobi says there is sufficient evidence to say that the testator was suffering from an effective disorder. So she says that the Deputy Master was right to prefer Professor Jacobi and right to reject Dr. Series' this evidence. 
So that's how the appeal turned out, which is to say no actual firm decision on the case itself because she's waiting to decide on the further evidence that's to be before her. She is, I think, hoping that the parties will mediate and come to some sort of decision without coming back to her. Indeed, that's, I imagine, quite likely, so we may not see this case again. So to remind everybody, the three points were, first of all, whether the Mental Capacity Act applied or Banks Goodfellow test, to which she decided Banks Goodfellow is still good law. Second, in respects of delusions, where she decided that delusions must be irrational and fixed in nature. And thirdly, in respect of expert evidence, where she was happy that the deputy master had approached the expert correctly. So that's all from me. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and you to tune in to our next one. Thank you very much.